Welcome to X-Men Unraveled. I'm Noelle, and in this podcast, I follow the stories of the X-Men in chronological order. Today, I am covering the early life of one of the most famous members of the X-Men team, Storm. This episode was delayed, so thank you for your patience when I had to cancel it last week. Unfortunately, podcasting doesn't pay my bills, and my day job cut into my podcasting time, but it's finally here and I get to talk about Storm. She is one of my absolute favorite characters in the comics and in the 90s cartoon. I can't wait to see her animated version again in the newly announced X-Men 97 series. The 90s cartoon was one of my first real introductions to most of the X-Men, and I always thought Storm was the coolest mutant when I was a kid, and I still do. That hasn't really changed. But before I get to her early years in the comics, I have to quickly go over a facet of the comics that is a little bit complicated. Up until now, I have been following stories as they happen in specific years, up until about 1963, but in this episode, the stories start to take place in Marvel time, which is confusing to say the least. Rather than having events progress and characters age in real time, Marvel uses a sliding timescale, which is kind of an insane concept, so this is my best attempt at explaining it. Comic events obviously don't happen in tandem with the timing of publication. If there's, say, a month between issues, a month has not necessarily passed in the story. So time moves slower in the comics. Most estimates I've found say that about 14 years have passed in Marvel time since Fantastic Four number one from 1961, and the events of that are like year zero of Marvel time. Most estimates put the ratio at one Marvel year for every four to five real years, but keep in mind it's not an exact science. In addition, while Marvel time moves slower than real time, it's also constantly sliding forward in time. So events in current comics are always happening in the present, but they also bring old issues forward with it. So if a comic was published in, say, 1992, the events in that comic don't live forever in 1992. As real time passes, that issue's events slide closer to the current year. So all Marvel comic events since Fantastic Four number one fit into about 14 years, give or take, always dating back from our current year. One important caveat to this are references to specific real-world events. These are referred to as topical references and tie the Marvel Universe to major events like the Apollo 1 mission or 9-11. Generally, topical references are events that are current at the time of a comic's publication, but keeping them tied to the real-world year would date the story and characters and age them faster than Marvel time. So topical references do not stay fixed to the year that they really happened. They get incorporated into the Marvel timeline and move forward with Marvel time as well. I tried to figure out the best way to explain this, and in my head, I picture the sliding timescale this way. Picture a timeline with the lines for each year, like the ones you probably saw in a history class, and they look kind of like a ruler. And the current timeline with all the years ends in 2021. Then there is a Marvel timeline, 
Currently, it's about 14 years long, and it sits in a little wagon. Stay with me. So right now, the Marvel Time Wagon sits across the years 2021 back to 2007, because all Marvel events fit into those 14 years. And that little wagon that's holding the Marvel timeline is tied by a little string to the end of the real ruler-looking timeline. And so when we get it to a new year, we add a line to the timeline, and this pulls the little wagon forward slightly to keep the events current. And when five years pass, so from right now in 2026, the wagon will also get one year longer, and so it'll cover 15 years. It's not a perfect example, I know, um, and I don't know how helpful it will be to anyone to try and picture this concept, but it's how I see it in my head to try and make it all make sense. And the reason I'm going over this is it's relevant since this is a podcast that has covered events and stories tied to real-world years so far. And that's because I've been talking about characters that have extended lifespans, like Wolverine and Sabretooth or Apocalypse. And then more recently, we've gotten to characters like Charles Xavier or Magneto, who are older than the original X-Men team, so they have fit in as well. But from the stories today forward, they start to fall away from real time and fit into that 14-year Marvel sliding timescale timeline. And it means that rather than following events as they happen in specific years, like I've been doing, I will be basically following events as they happen in relation to one another. And what that works out to is that in today's episode, we get to events that happen very closely to the formation of the X-Men team. It's only about 14 years ago in Marvel time, even though X-Men number one was published in 1963. It's all very confusing, but it's the way that writers have gotten away with keeping characters around for decades and avoiding the need to age them with the actual passage of time. And this might be a little bit too much information because you are listening to the podcast and not trying to put all these stories in chronological order, but I wanted to explain that this episode crosses an important threshold in the X-Men timeline. And since this is a podcast tied to chronology felt reasonable to go over what's happening with the timeline itself. And yes, when I'm working on episodes, I basically look like the meme of Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, looking insane, holding a cigarette, and pointing to a board covered in red lines. Or Cheedy, learning about Jeremy Baramy and The Good Place, if you've seen that. And I'm not going to pretend that I have a total grasp on this concept, but there's lots of articles and people explaining it online, so if you do want to go down that rabbit hole, just Google Marvel Sliding Timescale, and good luck to you if you decide to do that. So, with all of that in mind, Storm is a character that is around the same age as the original X-Men, so I'm going to cover her early life today, even though she doesn't show up on the team for quite a while. And in her story, there are topical references to events. However, keep in mind that they are not fixed in time, so when years like the 1950s come up, our storm is not really 60 years old. Other characters are also around the same age, but their stories aren't as fleshed out as hers in the comics, so I decided to just save their backgrounds and early life for when they're introduced in the comics. Storm is just different because she has comics devoted to her early life, so if you're wondering why I'm covering her but not Nightcrawler or any of the other X-Men who would be from their generation, that is why. 
All right. That was a lot of information, and this episode was delayed as it was because I have to pay the bills, unfortunately. So let's not take any more time and get into Storm's adventures in her early life. Aurora Monroe first appeared in the comics in Giant-Sized X-Men number 1 from 1976. She was created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. And Storm's character was actually a modification from an earlier character idea, according to an interview with Dave Cockrum. He had come up with an idea for a character called Black Cat, whose mutant power was to transform into a cat. And she was going to wear essentially the same outfit that Storm would show up in, but she had hair that formed into like cat ear shapes, and she wore a collar with a bell. Thankfully, the feline woman market was a bit saturated already with characters like Tigra, the cat, and Panther. so he revamped the character and Storm was introduced instead. She's also important as the first black X-Man on the team. The makeup of the team from Giant Sized was less white than the original team, so there was Storm, Sunfire, who's Japanese, and Thunderbird, who is an Apache. And this attempt at diversity is, of course, uh, undercut by the racism and view of non-white people that was alive and well in the 1970s, but I don't know, I give them, you know, credit for at least trying. It was at least a step in the right direction and opened the door for later writers to improve upon. Storm is an Omega-level mutant with weather manipulation abilities, making her a powerful member of the X-Men. And in her time as a member of the team, she's become an important leader to other mutants, rising to be one of the key members of the team over the years. But today I'm going to start with a story from her early life, who she is, and where she came from. In X-Men number 102 from 1976, we learn that Storm is the daughter of David Monroe, a black American photojournalist, and his wife, Nidare, who is from Kenya. They were living in New York City when Storm was born, and when she's about six months old, they decide to move to Cairo, Egypt. At the time of publication, Storm is six months old in 1951, but that date is no longer applicable in the sliding timescale. And the family decides to move to Cairo because David Monroe received a good job offer. And in Storm number one from 2006, we learn that Aurora's parents were getting tired of putting up with the racism in the United States, and they wanted to try and start a new life somewhere else. Nadare also wanted to get back to Africa. Living in the United States, she felt separated from her heritage, and she just really wanted to go back. So Aurora and her parents moved to Cairo, Egypt, and after they had been there for five years, living what sounds like a pretty happy life, Egyptian President Nassar nationalized the Suez Canal, which led to the Suez Crisis. In the story, when it was written, and in real life, this happened in 1956, but again, this is now a topical reference and not dated to that specific year in Storm's life. But in the real world, up until 1956, the Suez Canal was owned by the Suez Canal Company, a British-French group that got its power from colonial endeavors in the late 1800s. 
Egypt in 1956 wanted to reestablish their national sovereignty and remove colonial control. But colonists don't like to give up their power easily, so when the Tsar nationalized the canal, Britain and France attacked Egypt alongside Israel. Egypt and Israel had their own issues, and Egypt blocked shipping to and from Israel at the same time as the nationalization. The canal was not only a source of colonial power, it was also the route that much of Europe's oil traveled. So where there's oil, conflict tends to follow. I mention all of this because Aurora and her parents got caught up in the results of the conflict with devastating impact on Aurora's life. The European powers sent their militaries to invade, including sending the air forces in. When the attack started, Aurora and her parents were at home, just living their lives together, when a French plane was shot down and crashed into their house. Aurora and her parents were caught in the rubble from the collapsed building, and fires were burning from the plane's wreckage. Aurora was trapped in the rubble and saw her parents' bodies. Both of them died in the collapse. Aurora was eventually pulled from the rubble, but the whole experience left her with severe claustrophobia that would plague her throughout her life. I remember that was one of the things that always stood out to me um, in the animated series when I was a kid. They really showed how much this claustrophobia affected Storm and how much her fear of enclosed spaces took a toll on her and what a struggle it was to overcome as she's trying to help and save others. They just did that really well, and it always stuck with me. In all, the Suez Crisis lasted a little over a week, but at the end, Aurora was left orphaned and alone in Cairo. She had to survive alone on the streets for an unknown length of time until she was taken in by a man named Ahmed El-Jabbar. He was a master thief who recruited the orphaned or abandoned children of the city into a little street gang. He trained and tested them to make them the best thieves in Cairo. And I know it sounds a little shady, at least, for a man to be picking children up off the street, but El-Jabbar, at least what I've seen so far in the comics, seems to be a genuinely good dude, and he protected the kids and helped them make their way in the city when no one else did. And so Aurora was safe and learned to survive by living as a thief and pickpocket alongside other children under El-Jabbar's protection. And if you remember from the Charles Xavier episode, we briefly saw her when she picked his pocket and he realized she was a mutant. The series Aurora Before the Storm gives a glimpse into Aurora's life as an orphan on the streets of Cairo. It's not specified, but I would say she's probably about 10 or 11 at the time that this series takes place. In the first story of the series, Aurora is on a mission with two other children, Nari and Hakim, under orders from El-Jabbar. They are breaking into a warehouse to steal food for their group, but problems start to show up between Nari and Aurora. Nari is jealous that Aurora was chosen as the leader for their little mission, and she keeps trying to undercut Aurora's leadership. Nari wants to leave with Hakim while Storm is still in the warehouse gathering supplies. But Hakim argues with her, and Nari knocks an apple out of his hand, and it falls through the opening in the roof that Aurora climbed through, and when it bounces across the floor, it attracts the attention of the guards. 
Aurora has to quickly climb back up the rope and tells the other two children to run and keep to the roofs in order to escape the chasing guards. But they come to a large gap between two buildings, and Hakim is afraid that he can't make it. Aurora is trying to encourage him, but Nari wants to leave him behind and escape. Aurora refuses and gets Hakim to jump, but he doesn't make it and falls all the way to the ground. Nari runs away and says she's not going to get in trouble for Hakim's failure. But Aurora, our hero, nobly replies, I would suffer far more if I left a friend behind. We definitely see a lot of Storm's adult personality and qualities come out in this series, even though she's a little kid. And then Aurora does some impressive acrobatics, jumping to the ground, and helps Hakim up. But by now, the guards have arrived, and the two children are cornered. Luckily, just then, their patron, Ahmed Al-Jabbar, arrives and confronts the guards for them. And the guards immediately are apologetic when they see him and quickly say, Oh, we're sorry, we didn't know these children were under your protection. And while they're talking, Aurora and Hakim make their escape. When the two get back to the compound, Nari is in the middle of relaying a story of what happened to the other children in their mission. In her version of events, she blames Aurora for wanting to stay and fight the guards and get glory for herself. Aurora and Hakim immediately confront her for her lie, and Hakim goes after Nari, but Aurora jumps in between them. Ahmed El-Jabbar arrives just then, and he chastises Nari for leaving her friends behind, but he also tells Aurora that he expects better from her than getting her friends into danger, and he then tells the two girls that they will go without dinner as punishment. So Aurora goes to the roof and sits and looks at the stars by herself, and Hakim comes to join her. He thanks her for taking the fall for him and shares his food with her because he doesn't think it's fair that she had to go hungry for his mistakes. He then asks her why she spends so much time alone rather than with all of the other children. And Aurora tells him that it bothers her that her mother used to tell her that she came from a line of queens and priestesses, but now she's just alone and surviving as a thief. The next day, Aurora is back in the market stealing food, and one of the guards from the night before spots her and she has to run away and escape again. She does outwit him pretty easily and hides outside of a bar where she overhears a conversation that El Jabbar is having. He is in the middle of making a deal for a briefcase full of gold for the service of his little band of thieves. So Aurora runs back home, and when he gets there, El Jabbar reveals that he has a mission for her, Nari, and Hakim. The next day, El Jabbar brings the three children to the Great Pyramids, and they meet a man named Dr. Barrett. He was the one El Jabbar was meeting with when Aurora overheard him. But Barrett is less than thrilled to see that the help he hired is a group of children. Eljabar convinces him that the kids know what they're doing, so Barrett tells them that they are being hired to find the Opal of Ozymandias. This opal is said to give powers of invincibility and immortality, and whoever has it will live eternally in the service of En Saba Nur. Barrett does say that the legends tell of a curse on the opal, but goes on that he doesn't care about those myths. He just wants it safe in a museum, away from, quote, filthy locals who might get their hands on it. 
Aurora and her friends just stare back at Barrett, who realizes he made that statement to a bunch of locals, and he quickly walks it back and says he wasn't referring to them. But whatever, colonizer. Then Barrett goes on and tells them that the opal will be hidden past traps that only the best thief could survive. And finally, Barrett reveals that there's also a curse on the pyramid that says, Ozymandias will cause the stones of the pyramid to crush anyone who disturbs the sanctum of En Saba Nur. Barrett tries to brush all of this off as nothing, but of course we know that Ozymandias and En Saba Nur are alive and well, so Aurora and her two little compatriots are definitely walking into danger. Ozymandias, if you remember from any of the Apocalypse episodes, is cursed with immortality and forced to live forever as Apocalypse's servant. At this point, Roro jumps in and asks what they're getting in return for facing these dangers for the bauble that Barrett wants. Eljabar gets mad at her interruption, but Barrett laughs and says it's a fair question. He answers that they will be remembered forever as the ones who acquired the artifact, and they'll get a grand reward. And that's all Aurora needs to hear, and she's ready to get going. So Barrett gives the kids a map and sends them into the pyramid, while Eljabar waits behind with Barrett. Aurora, Nari, and Hakim head into the passages of one of the Great Pyramids, unsure of what they're going to encounter. Nari is being a little shit and harassing Hakim, saying she doesn't know why Eljabar would even send him with them because he's not even a very good thief. But Aurora stops in the passageway because her claustrophobia is starting to affect her and they're in a small square hallway. Nari then moves to being mean to Aurora, but our girl holds her own. She shoves Nari into the wall and says, you know what, give me a second and I'll be fine. And I love that we get to see Storm's take-no-shit attitude, even when she's a kid. Nari doesn't care, though. She says there's nothing to be afraid of right as she walks into a trap, kicking a switch that causes the ceiling of the entire passageway to start coming down to crush them. So the three kids have to run through and escape. And for Aurora, of course, this is especially terrifying, being potentially crushed in the space that's getting smaller and smaller by the second. Thanks, Nari. They manage to get through and then have some more Indiana Jones-like mishaps, nearly falling into a pit of scorpions, there's fire traps, and then another pit full of crocodiles and a chamber full of water they have to swim through before they reach the center of the pyramid where the opal is hidden. Meanwhile, outside, Eljabar is getting worried because it's taking so long for the children to return. He goes to Dr. Barrett's tent to discuss his concerns and overhears a conversation between Barrett and his cronies. Barrett is saying that as soon as the children come back, they can start their ceremony to usher in the Age of Apocalypse. So he's well aware of who En Sabanur is and lied to Eljabar about his real intentions. Eljabar tries to get away to stop the children from bringing back the opal, but Barrett's men have already realized he was listening and they capture him. Back in the pyramid, Nari rushes into the chamber with the opal and just grabs it from the hands of a statue without thinking, and of course, the statue and all the others in the room come to life to attack them. 
Nari and Hakim are trying to figure out how to fight the statues, but Aurora reminds them that they're faster and they can get away. They do some acrobatics, jumping around to avoid getting hit, and they throw bricks at the statues to keep them away. Then Aurora sees that there's a deep pit that seems to be filled with fire, and she gets the attention of the statue who appears to be the leader. And she threatens to throw the opal into the pit and destroy it if he doesn't call off the attack. It's a good move, but while she's distracted, one of the other stone guardian statues captures her and carries her over to the leader. But the lead guardian stops and immediately apologizes to Aurora when she gets close to him. He introduces himself as Ozymandias and says that he thought she was a common intruder. She doesn't know it yet, but he recognizes her as a mutant. And then he starts showing her carvings all around the walls, uh, which show the X-Men, and he tells her that he knows who she will become. That's one of the powers that he has. He can see the future and, I guess, carves it on the walls, because he's got nothing better to do. And one of the carvings shows Storm as an adult in her original costume from the comics, and there are people bowing down to her. Ozymandias tells her that she will be a leader of her people, and she is one of the chosen. So he gives her the opal with a warning that the power it gives comes at a great price. Having accomplished their mission, the children leave to get out of the pyramid, but on their way, there is a huge explosion that causes the passageway to cave in. Only Nari is able to escape, and she has the opal. Aurora and Hakim are trapped in the debris. Nari rushes out and finds Dr. Barrett and starts begging him to help her friends, but Barrett reveals that he set that final trap and caused the explosion because he couldn't have them learn about his true plans. So he grabs the opal from Nari, and we see that Barrett is actually a mutant himself. He appears to be able to control fire. It's not really specified what his power is, um, but his eyes light up and he shoots fire at Nari. Or at least it looks like fire. Aurora and Hakim, though, are still trapped. Aurora can see out of a little crevice, and she sees Hakim's hand reaching out from a pile of rubble, but she is stuck and she can't get free. This causes her to start having flashbacks to the day that her parents were killed, and she saw them trapped in the rubble of their home. But this time, she's able to maintain a sense of calm, and even though she doesn't know of her powers at this time, she causes a gust of wind, which is powerful enough to lift some of the rocks and get herself free. And then a burst of lightning appears and breaks apart all of the boulders that were burying her and Hakim. Hakim has survived as well, and he asks her what happened because he was like, a storm showed up. And she says, I don't know, I just called out to my goddess, and then the storm came and freed us. Hakim says, you know what, it worked, and not going to question anything else. Um, and the two of them are able to escape the pyramid. But when they get outside, everything is quiet and dark. They don't see Nari or El Jabbar, and they start to get worried. Obviously, they are not aware of Barrett's treachery, so they go to his tent for help, but it's dark and empty as well. But as they're looking, someone rushes at them and tackles them, and it turns out to be one of the other children from Cairo named Abdul. He tells them that Barrett's men came and captured all of the children and brought them there, and El Jabbar and Nari are prisoners with them. Aurora says they have to go help, and they aren't going to stop until all of their friends are safe. 
The boy goes back with them into a chamber of the pyramid. Looks like the same one where they found the opal. And Barrett is in the middle of starting his ceremony. He is making a speech about bringing Ensaba Nor back for the elevation of their kind. The three children are trying to figure out what to do, and Abdul offers to go and distract Barrett. Aurora initially doesn't want him to put himself in danger, but Abdul convinces her that Barrett still thinks she's dead, so he needs to be the distraction while she keeps the element of surprise. Abdul jumps out of hiding and starts taunting Barrett, while Aurora and Hakim sneak over to the other children and El-Jabbar and set them free. But Abdul starts getting overpowered, and then Barrett unleashes his mutant power and flames fly out across the room. Barrett then rushes for the opal, but Hakim has already taken it. In anger, Barrett attacks Nari, and she is burned by the fire. So to stop him, Aurora offers the opal to Barrett with a cryptic statement about the price of the immortality that it will grant him. Barrett greedily takes the opal, puts it in a crown, and as soon as he sets it on his head, he starts turning into stone. And so Aurora saves the day um, and all her friends from Barrett by listening to what Ozymandias told her. Eljabar gathers the children and they all go home, and apparently Nari is okay because no one brings up the fact that she just like got broiled by Barrett's powers, so I don't know, didn't affect her. And the comic ends as Nari, Hakim, and Aurora are sitting on the roof of their home together. Nari finally offers some praise to Aurora, and they call each other sister. And that is the end of Aurora Before the Storm. It's a fun, kind of cute little look into the adventures of her early life. And we see the traits that make her such an important X-Men team member later on. She knows how to lead and won't leave her friends behind, and she's already learning to manage her fear in the face of her claustrophobia, and importantly, she knows how to stand up for herself. This series is definitely geared toward a younger audience, but I thought it was a fun look at Storm's early life, and I love any Indiana Jones-inspired stories, which this definitely was. Next episode, I'll continue following her early years in the series Storm from 2006, and we'll see her learn about her powers. I hope you enjoyed this story. I know it's a simple one, but I liked how it tied to Apocalypse through Barrett's schemes, and we see Ozymandias again. Thank you for listening. I will post updates and pictures on Instagram at Unraveled. So check those out if you aren't already following and see you next time with more about Storm. Storm.